I didn't need to go out and interview a Navy SEAL sniper to figure out what it was like in the streets of Ramadi in 2005, 2006, or what it was like to kick in a door in, in Baghdad in 2004, 5, 6. I got to think about those experiences and then apply them to a completely fictional narrative. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratford. I'm Fred Burton. Today I'm talking with Jack Carr, the author of his new book, Savage Son. Jack, welcome. Fred, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here again. I always love talking to you. I want to write more books just so I can jump on a podcast with you and we can have these conversations. Oh, that's awesome, Jack. I Well, first off, I, I want to thank you for uh, mentioning me and Stratford and your acknowledgments. You were very kind to do that. Oh, absolutely. No, you know, I've been a fan for a, a long time and uh, was one of the, I guess, earlier, the earliest subscribers that I know of uh, in the SEAL teams because uh, I was an Intel guy for those uh, when I was enlisted. It was an uh, Intel communications sniper type specialist before I became an officer. And uh, as soon as I found out about Stratfor, I got a, a personal, like a personal business account or something back in 2000. So I think it was even pre-September 11th um, that uh, that I got my first introduction to Stratfor. And I obviously love what you guys are doing and look forward to uh, to waking up and getting my coffee and coming down and looking in my inbox every day to see what uh, your take is on what is happening in the world. So thank you so much for all you do. Well, you're very kind, Jack. Uh, now let's begin with Savage Son. I, I have to tell you this. I literally stayed up an entire night reading this book. Oh. And it and it's been a long time since a thriller has captivated me like this. And love your Ernest Hemingway quote right off the bat, where you say, There is no hunting like the hunting of man, and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter. And that kind of sets the stage for Savage Son, doesn't it? It does. And this is the novel that I've wanted to write since the sixth grade, since I first uh, read The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, which was a 1924 short story that I found out they still teach in many schools across the country. My daughter is uh, reading it in her, her class. Wow. It's remote these days. Um, and I knew back then that one day I would write a thriller that paid tribute to that novel and uh, or to that short story. And uh, this was it. And it was actually the one that I wanted to write first, but I knew that the characters weren't developed enough to explore the themes that I explore in Savage Sun. So I kicked it off with the terminal list, which explores revenge without constraint, and then continued the story in True Believer with a story of violent redemption. And uh, then by that time, they were ready. The characters were ready to explore the dark side of man through that hunter hunted dynamic uh, with today's geopolitics as the backdrop. So um, I'm, I'm so excited to get this out there. Well, you should be. Uh, I mean, it's really a page turner and it's kind of ripped from the headlines uh, with nation state intelligence services and organized crime. And And I simply love James Reese, your character. Tell me a little bit about James Reese. How did you put him together? Right. So I started writing this my last year in the military. And for those who have been in the military, they know that when you drop your papers and tell them you're getting out, you kind of go in a different pile and your job becomes to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy, uh, going to different appointments for dental and medical and getting things signed and getting read out of different TSCI programs and that sort of thing. Uh, so I had a little time. So that was when I started writing my first novel, The Terminal List. And uh, my character, uh, James Reese, is a former enlisted 
Navy SEAL sniper. And when readers meet him in the first novel, he's decided to, to get out. He's decided to take care of his family. He's returning from his de last deployment. And that last deployment will be the last one where he tactically maneuvers people on the battlefield because he's made that rank lieutenant commander, which is a major for the rest of the services uh, in 04. And that's the stage I was at when I uh, started uh, really uh, shifting my focus from taking guys downrange and towards that next chapter in life, which was going to be as an author and taking care of my family. So, uh, so I got to explore some of those emotions and those feelings behind things that I've been doing for the last almost 20 years downrange at that time, and then apply those feelings and emotions to a completely fictional narrative. So I didn't need to go out and interview a Navy SEAL sniper to figure out what it was like in the streets of Ramadi in 2005, 2006, or uh, what it was like to kick in a door in, in Baghdad in 2004, five, six. Uh, I got to just think about those experiences and then apply them to a completely fictional narrative. So it ended up being a very therapeutic process and got to uh, put those memories in, in a, uh, I guess, in a more positive, use them in a positive way as I transitioned out. And I know Jack, that you have such a loyal fan base on Twitter. I threw it out yesterday that I was going to be interviewing you, and oh my goodness, the questions flowed in. For example, T.A. Sullivan asks, uh, how come you're only interested in fiction? Have you thought about writing nonfiction? I always wanted to write fiction. So those two things I wanted to do with my life were serve my country in uniform as a SEAL and then write fiction, the kind that I was really, really enjoyed reading um, back in my earlier days. So uh, I just grew up with this love of reading because my mom is a librarian and we grew up surrounded by books. And I wanted to write books one day, like the kind I was reading back then by guys like by David Morrell and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Tom Clancy. And then later on, Stephen Hunter. And then later on uh, after that, uh, Daniel Silva and Brad Thor and Vince Flynn. So I had this foundation built and uh, I always knew I was going to write fiction in the genre. Uh, I never really thought about right. I mean, I thought about for a half a second uh, writing nonfiction, I guess, but really my passion lies in writing fiction and then using my experiences in real life uh, to add a certain flavor to the pages of my fictional thrillers. And Chris Miller wanted to know why you like bow over rifle hunting. Uh, well, I do like both. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it extends the season, of course. You can get out there with less people with a bow. Um, and I've always been attracted to archery. I think I shot my first bow when I was five. So archery has been a part of my life for a very long time. Uh, when I graduated from BUDS, from SEAL training, the first thing I did, my reward to myself, was to go out and uh, get fitted for a brand new bow. And I still have that that bow today. Uh, and that was over 20 years ago. So it's always been a part of my life. Uh, it's a very therapeutic experience just to uh, for target archery. Uh, and then, of course, when you're putting meat on your family's table that way, um, it's a completely different experience that uh, ties us back to our to our earliest days as a uh, well before pre-civilization type days. So there's something very visceral uh, about it and something that just resonates in our DNA. So I wanted to weave that into the storyline of Savage Sun as well. So it's a, I call it an archery centric thriller. <laughs> well, uh, I, I certainly don't want to give it away in Savage Sun, but uh, the bow plays a uh, very interesting part in the story, I, I must say. Thank you. Yes, I used it as, uh, I won't give too much away either, but uh, the way a lot of veterans actually are, are uh, getting into archery these days is a, is a therapeutic type uh, endeavor, uh, and then maybe later transitioning on to, uh, to bow hunting. But uh, I use it both ways in the book. I guess I'll leave it at that. And one of the other comments I received on Twitter uh, about our discussion today was 
an individual asks, how fast of a reader are you? You seem to be the kind of guy that's that's constantly reading or constantly researching. Constantly researching these days. Uh, I need to get one thing. I need to get better at is um, coming up with a schedule that I stick to, uh, where I'm not running around like a crazy person all the time, uh, and block off time for reading in the morning. That's just for fun. That's not research. Um, but a lot of like my reading list. I have a reading list that goes out every month, and I choose six books from my uh, professional reading list that I put together for the SEAL teams before I got out, and then I add books to that that have had an impact on me at some point throughout my life. So some come from the professional reading list I was asked to put together. Others just come from things that I enjoyed reading growing up or that had an impact on me at some point along my journey. So I put those out uh, every month and those are six books that come out. And uh, so it might seem like I'm reading all the time, but I've been reading my entire life. So I had, uh, I gravitated towards the books that my parents were reading, I think at a very early age. So by fifth grade, I was reading uh, Tom Clancy, reading the things on my, on my parents' shelves, definitely by sixth grade. Uh, so I've been reading this entire time and I put those into my reading list uh, because I want to share those reading experiences with people that are out there that are hungry uh, and want to want to know what I've been reading or what uh, what impacted me along my journey. So it might seem like I'm reading all the time, but a lot of those <laughs> on my reading list are things that I read in the 80s and 90s. We'll get back to Jack Carr in a moment. I'm cutting in here to speak to you, our podcast listener. Never before has the world faced what it's facing now. I worked in counterterrorism for many years. I've been in the intelligence forecasting and security for many more. I have to know what's happening before it happens, so I read Stratfor Worldview every day. I read it to understand what's going on, why it matters, and what's going to happen next. That's the critical thing. What happens next? Stratfor Worldview delivers intelligence, and with everything going on right now, it's time for intelligence. I encourage you to subscribe today. Visit worldview.stratfor.com slash podcast offer. There is a special offer for podcast listeners. Thanks. Well, Jack, you've done a tremendous job with social media. How how big do you think social media is with uh, thriller writers? Right. So everybody approaches it in a different way. And you know, I, I looked at the space before I jumped in and I didn't really jump in before my first novel was published. So that was uh, in March of 2018, the terminal list came out. So I was looking for about a year. I was just looking, following along, seeing what I liked, what I didn't, um, what was appropriate, what was not, uh, that sort of thing. And then I dove in. But, uh, but I did my research first, and then I slowly started uh, learning more about it uh, as I got into it, as you would do with anything. So for me, I look at it as that's my storefront. As thriller authors or authors in general, we don't have a storefront. Uh, so right. I look at social media as essentially if I owned a general store in uh, any town USA, uh, that's where I – where I would be behind the counter and that's where I interact with my customers and whether they're coming in to ask for directions back to the interstate or they're coming in to, uh, to get a carton of milk, uh, I treat them the same way I do on people on social media. So that's, that's my storefront. And uh, whether someone's asking me a question or just telling me they enjoy the book or whatever it may be, I interact with them or I try to interact with them the same way that I would if they walked into my store and we were face to face. So, and I feel, I feel so fortunate that I'm, I'm doing what I love to do. And the only reason I can do it is because of word of mouth from uh, a a grassroots word of mouth, someone taking a risk on a new author and then telling their friend, whether it's in person or it's uh, their social media following, which may be one person or maybe a million people. 
but I try to treat everybody the same way that I would if, uh, if we were in an elevator together talking or if they walked into my general store. Well, and I know that most people don't know this, but you truly are one of the nice guys in the business. I've, I know that from just your efforts to, to help me in the past with my books and just your willingness to, to reach out and to assist other authors. And, and I've noticed that in just your social media postings that you do make an effort to answer everybody's questions and so forth. And, and that's something that, that I've learned to do too. I, I think that that is important. That's just the right thing to do for someone who's spent money on, on any of our books. Yeah, I try to do it. If I missed anyone, uh, it wasn't intentional. Uh, it's just because there's too much coming in. But I try to, at the end of the day, I go through all those feeds again and try to get back to, to everybody. And I'm, uh, I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter, but I do have a Facebook account, but three platforms was just too much. So, uh, Facebook just reposts. I don't even know how to log in. It just reposts from the Instagram, but I try to get back to everybody. And of course I go to Beirut rules all the time. Your book, I, oh, wow. your books I love in general, but Beirut rules is one just because, uh, growing up, that was such a distinct memory for me. Uh, well, all, all, and all the things that led up to it from Iranian hostage crisis to the, the bombing of the, uh, the barracks in Beirut, the embassy in Beirut, um, uh, and Bill Buckley's of course, um, abduction. But uh, all those things I remember. And I remember Walter Cronkite talking about them and our family sitting around the dinner table watching that the news at the, uh, the end of the day. And I remember the, uh, the newspaper showing up that would have the black and white photos. That time really made an impact on me. Uh, and then all the hijackings that followed aircraft and all that stuff that was on the cover of Time Magazine or Newsweek at the time. So, uh, so all those things really guided me into special operations. And I knew that, the, that my war would be uh, a war against terrorists. Well, you know, Jack, it's uh, kind of surreal for somebody like me. I, it's kind of like the Bob Seger song. It seems like yesterday, but it was a long time ago. It does and, seem like yesterday. <laughs> and it really does. It, it really does uh, because we didn't have uh, all the social media platforms there to um, to go to. And, we, of course, we were you know, just responding to terrorist event after terrorist event. It, it seemed like it was never-ending. And then, of course, nine eleven changed the world, as as you well know. Oh yes, um, it, we, when when we first showed up at our SEAL teams, people that went in before September eleventh, uh, we thought that we were going to show up and sign in, and next thing you know, we'd be off to to save the world on some secret mission. But what really happened before September eleventh was uh, they handed you a broom and uh, said, "Oh, go go sweep <laughs> up that, or go change that light bulb, go paint that wall, you know, do new guy stuff." Um, and we're like, well, "Where's the secret missions?" Um, and that didn't really happen until after September eleventh. And after September eleventh, uh, we really started to do what we thought we were going to do when we came in before. So I had one deployment before September 11th, and then I was two weeks into my second one uh, when the planes hit. And then it was uh, really uh, a full-on sprint uh, from then on. And the guys are still doing it today. There's uh, there's people, depending on when listeners are uh, listening to, to this, there are people either heading off on a mission or coming back from one. So I try to remember them each and every day. Well, Savage Sun is filled with so much gear, Jack, that I must say every time I read one of your books, whether it be The Terminal List or True Believer and now Savage Sun, you cause me to spend money. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There'll be a gear guide coming out soon for Savage Sun. And uh, I love when you do your postings and post a holster or a pistol or whatever it may be and uh, say, does James Reese have one of these? Does Jack Carr have one of these? And uh, oftentimes uh, both do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found that it's tough keeping ahead of you. Now in the research for your book here, Savage Sun, it, it took you from Russia 
to Montana. What was the most interesting thing you learned in the course of your research for Savage Sun? Right. So the research for True Believer, I'll jump back to that really quickly, going to Mozambique um, and then to South Africa, helping train up an anti-poaching unit down there. In both of those countries, everyone I talked to was excited to share the story of their country, was excited to talk about uh, the politics, was excited to talk about poaching, was excited. They were excited to talk about Chinese influence, both in legal and illegal mining operations and how it was affecting the environment. They were just they wanted to talk and tell their story. So I expected the same thing in Russia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was not the case. So I went to Kamchatka, Russia, and which is just south of Siberia, where uh, part of the action in, true, in uh, Savage Sun takes place. And I expected everyone to want to talk to me and tell their story. Uh, the exact opposite was true. And I think that is because for most of Russian history, if someone was asking you pointed questions, particularly the kind that uh, an author of thrillers uh, in this genre is going to ask, that uh, you weren't long for this world. You were, you were off to the gulag pretty soon thereafter if someone's asking you these type of pointed questions. So they were very skeptical and uh, did not want to talk. So it took a little while for me to build up that trust, build up those relationships and uh, pry that information out of them. And what it really did was allow me to add that local flavor to those sections of the novel. So I went there, I walked the, I walked the terrain, I, I talked to the people, I looked at the weapons that they had, vehicles they had, the snowmobiles that they had, uh, which are different than ours, um, and then wove that into the storyline as well to give it some of that uh, local flavor that you can't really get from a Google search. You certainly caused me to purchase a new Sig Sauer P365, Jack. So Nice. I love me, it. Yeah. You, you are certainly an ambassador for Sig. I know that. But what SIG do you like best? So I carry the 365 because it is small, it is easy to grab, easy to throw in that holster to, to leave the house with. So that's the one that I carry most often. Um, I have others, of course, I have a, a few different others, but uh, but the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart is the old uh, P226 because sure. that's what I carried for the entire time I was in the SEAL teams and it was uh, on my side for every single one of those deployments. And if I had to go to uh, some sort of a... I don't know, some sort of a strange meeting or whatever where I had to take off that body armor and go into, I don't know, a cafe or whatever it was to, to meet someone uh, where I couldn't have my M4 because uh, it's just the optics didn't look quite right or whatever it was. Uh, I always had that uh, 226 by my side. And same thing when we had to go to meetings, even on bases, and you had to take off your stuff. Well, guess what was always <laughs> was always there, even if it had to be concealed and I wasn't really supposed to have it, uh, was that uh, 226. It certainly is a very nice weapon. I know we had that pistol when I was an agent with the State Department, and that's what we transitioned from when we went from the uh, Smith & Wesson Model 19 357. Nice. I love it. I love it. Uh, and that, yeah, it feels like SIG just built that 226 for my hand. It just feels so good in my hand and it always has. So, uh, yeah, it's the, it's, it's, I'd say that's my go-to, but it's not my everyday carry just because it is a, a little large for carrying every day when you're juggling kids and going to soccer practices and doing all the things that I do in my, the, the post military chapter of my life. Well, Jack Carr, thank you for being on Stratfor Pen and Sword podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoy it each and every time we get to talk. So uh, I'm going to churn out some more books so we can do it more often. Love that. Jack Carr is the author of Savage Sun. In these times, everyone needs a trusted source to rely on. Stratfor is here to help. You can check out all of Stratfor's pen and sword podcasts at worldview.stratfor.com. While you're there, consider subscribing. There's a special offer for podcast listeners. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.